Andrew. Welcome to Sub Rosa. A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. In this episode, we interview Trish Cameron, Legal Aid Coordinator at Sawaka, an Indonesia-based network that works for refugee rights protection in the country. We spoke about the issue of increasing numbers of asylum seekers in Indonesia and the region, the challenges this poses for Indonesia-based organisations, how asylum seekers and refugees are received by the wider community in Indonesia, and the ways in which civil society organisations are working towards the creation of effective refugee processing legislation and systems in the Asia-Pacific region. Thanks for joining us today, Trish. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you're working in Jakarta with a network called Suaka, which works with asylum seekers. Could you tell us about the overall work of the network and how it came about? Yeah, well, Suaka is an Indonesian word which means asylum, and Suaka is an Indonesian civil society network for refugee rights protection. It started when a few lawyers who worked at Jakarta Legal Aid, which is Lembaga Bantuam Hukum in Indonesian, uh, had some asylum seekers actually come in and ask them for help. And in Indonesia, uh, lawyers aren't trained in refugee law. Uh, they don't really know much about what's going on because Indonesia is not a signatory to the convention. But they could see these people really needed help, so they decided they had to do something. And that's what happened. So they spoke with UNHCR, uh, got together and read lots of things over lots of very late nights and help these asylum seekers who were recognised as refugees. And that was the beginning, and that was around 2011. And then since then, it's formed into a bit more of a formal organisation, and it's made up of uh, a couple of different organisations and then lots of individuals that want to help asylum seekers and refugees in Indonesia. Okay, great. So what does Suaka actually do to assist asylum seekers living in Indonesia? Well, there's three main areas that we work in. Uh, the one that I focus on the most is legal aid to asylum seekers and refugees, so helping them go through the process, the UNHCR process of becoming refugees, the application and the interview and if they need to appeal. So that's one big area. We also have a policy and advocacy area which works on creating or talking more about a legal framework to support asylum seekers in Indonesia and make sure their human rights are upheld. And then we also have more of a public awareness area which speaks with uh, government and media and the general community just to raise awareness about issues of asylum seekers in Indonesia because it is a very, very small percentage of the population there. That's true. A drop in the ocean compared to a lot of the other problems Indonesia has to deal with at the moment. So given Indonesia is not party to the Refugee Convention and there are limited legal protections and support available for asylum seekers in the country, what are the key areas of concern for Sawaka and other Indonesia-based stakeholders given the increasing number of arrivals in recent years? As I said a little earlier, there's not really a legal framework for asylum seekers in Indonesia. Uh, one of our main focuses is advocating better policies towards asylum seekers and refugees. We have been involved in formulating a draft presidential regulation on handling refugees and asylum seekers. That's been around since 2012. Unfortunately, it's still in draft form. So most recently, Suaka has given feedback and critical comment on this draft. 
and at every opportunity we continue to urge the Indonesian government, usually through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, to legislate for increased refugee protection and to uphold their rights. Although asylum seekers who have been granted refugee status by the UNHCR living in Indonesia, they still lack certain basic rights, such as the right to work and the right to an education and so on. How does this situation affect life for um, refugees living in the wider community in Indonesia for the long term while they await their processing for resettlement? There are very limited domestic legal protections and also very limited and restricted support services for asylum seekers. Uh, the Indonesian government allows UNHCR to enter the country and to work on refugee status determination. So UNHCR does that. Indonesian government is not involved in that, but they do allow asylum seekers to remain in the country and they won't deport them while they're going through that UNHCR process. Um, Indonesia has indicated an intention to accede to the Refugee Convention. That was back in 2009. Nothing's happened yet, uh, but we're, we remain hopeful and we continue to urge them when we can. SOAKA supports any move towards legal framework, whether that's the draft presidential regulation that I spoke of earlier, whether that's uh, continuing to mention that they had indicated an intention to sign the Refugee Convention. We believe that if they did sign the Convention, there would be an overall decrease in the number of asylum seekers because if you're a Convention country, it means asylum seekers can and refugees can be resettled in your country. At the moment, that's not possible in Indonesia. They have to wait for a resettlement somewhere else. If asylum seekers knew if they were found to be a refugee in Indonesia, they could live there and get jobs there and raise their children there, they may choose to make other decisions about what country they want to go to. Indonesia has been thought of as a transit country um, and a lot of Indonesian and a lot of asylum seekers do transit through it. If that wasn't a possibility, we think it would overall slowly decrease the number of asylum seekers coming to Indonesia. Um, as to how it affects daily life, I think speaking from an Australian perspective, we're used to a very regulated society with lots of not-for-profit and civil society groups that can support asylum seekers and refugees. Totally different situation in Indonesia. And there are, as a developing country, they have a lot of issues with community members that are Indonesian, vulnerable groups and disadvantaged groups. So to put it in context, the life of daily asylum seekers is not unlike the life of many Indonesians. Uh, so you, I should also remember that Indonesia is one of the world's most populated countries, has many of the same issues as other developing countries, and out of around 250 million people, the number of asylum seekers and refugees is only 14,000. So, and that's only in the last five to ten years. The numbers were much lower than that five and ten years ago. So this is a really new issue with Indonesia. There's no civil society support network. It has been slowly growing, especially over the last 12 months or so. Um, the refugee community is tiny and it's not really visible. It's not like in Australia where it's making the news most days and people are aware of the issue even if they don't know the complexities involved. There, people don't even know that it's an issue at all. Um, rule of law in Indonesia is not as strong as in some developed countries. Uh, corruption can be an issue, even though Indonesian government and civil society is working very hard on this issue and they're doing a great job. Discrimination occurs not only against asylum seekers, but against all sorts of different groups in Indonesia. Um, but it's different than in Australia, where the rule of law is quite strong, so you can rely on 
the law to help you if, if someone's discriminated against you. Um, I believe Indonesia's working very hard at tackling all of these issues. Asylum seekers in detention are a concern for us, as everywhere in the world, including in Australia, especially unaccompanied minors and minors that are separated from their families. Uh, some asylum seekers struggle with finance because they can't work. They can't keep themselves fed and housed. And again, there's no not-for-profit organisations to fall back on. There's two UNHCR partners that do a great job, but they are quite small and they can only reach a small percentage of the population. So being able to visit a doctor when you're ill can be impossible. Being able to find accommodation can be impossible. Um, some asylum seekers have family that have already been resettled in other parts of the world and can afford to send them a little bit of money. Some can't. Some have money of their own, some don't. Um, um, I have been told stories from asylum seekers of discrimination and corruption committed against them, but equally I've been told as many stories about Indonesian neighbours being extremely supportive, very welcoming, looking after them in all sorts of different situations, their children playing together, becoming part of the community. So I find Indonesia to be one of the friendliest places I've ever been and the, out of all the places that I've lived, and I think most asylum seekers find that as well. Um, they do live quite quietly there and try and stay out of the spotlight, as I think you would find in most countries. I've also heard positive stories about the generosity of everyday Indonesians towards asylum seekers living amongst the community in Indonesia whilst waiting the processing of their claims. Yet despite this, um, I did notice in media reporting in Indonesia, especially in the context of immigration raids, that many asylum seekers were referred to using quite negative language, including labels such as illegal immigrants, criminals and so on. Given this... How does Sulwaka work to address wider community and media understanding about the presence of asylum seekers in Indonesia? And did this change at all with the arrival of the Rohingya? Well, yes, it is true that uh, illegal immigrants has been thrown around by media, which is usually coming from the government. But it's important to note that the Australian government does this as well. Um, and lots of other governments around the world use this terminology now. So it's something that's not specific to one country. It's something that's becoming a mindset that we need to change. Um, so ACA does constantly seek to increase community knowledge. We've got our, our group that goes out and does a lot of work within the community, speaks to civil society groups and different community groups and students and anyone that's interested in finding out more, really. Uh, about what's going on in this area. The arrival of many Rohingya, which was around 12 months ago now, around May in 2015, did open up this issue a bit more in mainstream society. It's still not front-page news. Uh, civil society especially has taken more notice now. Uh, compared to Australia, refugee and asylum seeker issues are non-existent, but there's a little bit more interest in finding out what's going on and how people can help. I'd like to talk a bit about asylum seekers as a regional issue. So in Australia, the focus of government media and advocacy groups has historically been on asylum seekers arriving to Indonesia in transit to Australia. Yet now there are growing numbers of displaced people from within Southeast Asia, such as the Rohingya. How has the Indonesian government and civil society responded to the arrival of this group? I should probably start by saying... Uh... The focus in Australia is very different when it comes to refugees and asylum seekers than the focus in a lot of Southeast Asian nations. When I come back to Australia and I have meetings with people, 
very much a focus on the boats, the boats, the boats, the boats. From the Indonesian point of view, that's not an issue at all. Um, the boats have arrived from Rohingya, but the Indonesians have taken these people in and are supporting them and looking after them within Indonesia. So that's one thing to note. Um, yes, Indonesia has always been thought of as a transit country. That is beginning to change now. Uh, some people listening may be aware, some might not, that the Australian government has a cut-off point. So if an, in, if an asylum seeker arrived in Indonesia after June 2014 and registered for asylum after that date, they can never be resettled in Australia, even if they're found to be a refugee. They can be resettled in other countries, but the Australian government has said, if you are coming through Indonesia, you will not ever make it to Australia. Um, so it means that Indonesia is slowly becoming a destination country, not a transit country. Uh, with the Rohingya, over the last 12 months, many Indonesian groups have been campaigning for solidarity for Rohingya, and in turn the government's been more, been more positive in its response. And this has had a flow-on effect to other asylum seekers and more interest in what's going on. Uh, civil society becoming more interested has meant we can build more relationships among not-for-profits and civil society within Indonesia and regionally, and that's also building on the flow of people taking more interest generally in what's going on in Indonesia now. The positive response to Rohingya can relate to a few different things. It's quite a complex issue, not just Rohingya, but asylum seekers generally. So with the Rohingya, the way they arrived by boat was very visual, and it's very large numbers, very short period of time. They were in extremely bad physical condition most of the time. Also in Indonesia, because Myanmar is so close and because it's Islamic, Rohingya are Islamic, um, people's general knowledge in Indonesia about the ongoing persecution of Rohingya communities was higher than it is about other asylum seeker groups coming from further away. So more was known about the Rohingya also because they arrived in Aceh and Aceh has had troubles in the past with internal conflict that might have made them more open to supporting and accepting people that were also going through their own issues with persecution. Um, other refugee communities do not come in big numbers in the same way. They don't receive the same media coverage or attention. And now and again, when there may be a small article about asylum seekers generally, it might not be quite as positive. Um, but overall... Uh, most people, once they become aware of the issue, are very open to helping them out. Uh, the same as in Australia. Uh, from all of my history speaking with Australians and refugee law and working in the area, I've never met an Australian person myself, I know they're out there, that can't, you, I can't have a genuine discussion with and they see that it's a complex issue and they do want to help other people. So what the government and media is saying and what's happening on the street in Australia is, in my opinion, two very different things. In Indonesia, uh, the government's not really saying a lot because it's such a small issue, but the people have the same mentality as Australia. Is these people need help. We want to help them if we can. So it seems the Rohingya inspired a greater sense of solidarity and empathy from Indonesians. Do you think the Indonesian public may see Indonesia as a longer-term place of refuge for groups like the Rohingya or, or other persecuted minorities? There have been many calls for Rohingya to be assimilated into the local population, especially in Aceh, which is where the majority of Rohingya have stayed, uh, where, and that's where many of the boats came to shore as well. 
it needs to be remembered that there's a difference between assimilation into the community in an informal sense and the international law UNHCR version of a durable solution for refugees to be resettled in a country. As Indonesia is not a signatory to the convention, there's no legal avenue to resettle people in Indonesia at this stage. Um, durable solutions is just not possible in that way. Again, Indonesian public doesn't know a lot about asylum seekers. It's not an issue for more than a very small percentage of the population, mainly civil society groups. This is something Sawaka is working on changing, and we do see that if it comes to a time where Indonesia was to sign the convention, many asylum seekers, I think, in my experience, would be quite happy to stay and settle in Indonesia and become part of the community there. So it is something that could happen one day, and it's something that Suaka will continue to work towards. So although there's been support on the ground in Indonesia for different communities arriving, it seems that existing regional migration and security forums have been reluctant to come up with a long-term strategy for asylum seekers arriving in the region. And so instead of become, being a place of transit, Indonesia now hosts growing numbers of asylum seekers and refugees for longer periods. Has there been much talk of the possibility of Indonesia or other Southeast Asian countries becoming a more permanent place of protection in the long term? There is always talk about these issues. Uh, the tripartite discussions that have been happening between Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia about the, the boats coming with Rohingya people, it has been talked about around the edges. There hasn't been any formal declarations. There hasn't been... There's not really been much more than discussion at this stage. Uh, the Indonesian government has two ways. So they argue that Indonesia is not a party to the convention and they're not bound by the convention, uh, having obligations to refugees. They refer to them as illegal immigrants under the domestic immigration law. But the government has also said that it plans at some stage to sign the refugee convention. So there's two different things going on there. Um, they also, as a developing nation, there's concerns which are discussed about domestic security, economic issues, social tensions, economic burdens, increases in criminal activity, all of the same issues that every single government would bring up. Uh, so we're not alone in that. Uh, it's, it's something that will continue to be discussed. I hope, and Suaka would hope, that at some point it tips over into concrete, practical solutions. Um, in Asia, and something that I really like as compared to a developed country or English-speaking nations, it's things happen more quietly. There's a lot more discussions. There's a lot more going on behind the discussions that many people who grew up in a developed country would probably realise. So even if it seems like nothing might be happening, it's from our, our perspective as English speakers seeing that because we're more used to being very upfront and quite demanding. Um, so I think a lot of great work is being done behind the scenes from people within governments in those countries, also from not-for-profit and civil society groups. And it might, even though it might seem people might be impatient for something to happen, things are happening very slowly when you are in contact with these groups day to day. Um, so that's something that I continue to be positive about where I hear about it. I think we're actually doing okay. With the Bali process... Something that was kind of driven by Australia, uh, it's, it's quite stalled. And also a difference in cultural attitudes between the Australian government when they go to meetings and governments in Asia as well. So that's something to remain aware of. Do you, 
Do you think Australia could play a much more active role in providing solutions or contributing to potential solutions in relation to the issue of asylum seekers in the region? Mm. I have been asked that a number of times. Um, And the only thing I can say is that at the moment, I am living and working in Indonesia with... I'm the only non-Indonesian working with Suaka. And I think my colleagues are doing a fantastic job and the focus is on asylum seekers and refugees in Indonesia and how we can best support them and how we can support the Indonesian government to build a legal framework. So it's probably not appropriate for me to comment on things that are happening in Australia when I'm not living here and I'm not working here at the moment. Sure. There are probably listeners who are interested in knowing how they can support asylum seekers living in Indonesia. And there are several groups that have um, emerged who have attempted to do so in, in, the rec- in recent years. Uh, what avenues would you suggest to provide um, for su- providing assistance to asylum seekers or other particular organisations that are, that are doing valuable work in Indonesia? What kinds of groups would you suggest people could support? Yeah, there is, there is a fair bit going on there. Um, Suaka, as, you, as we've talked about uh, throughout this interview, is a quite young organisation. We're supported, very luckily supported by Jakarta Legal Aid. We're giving some desk space and we're able to use their facilities. We don't have any funding of our own and that's the next step for us is to move to our own office and have permanent full-time staff that can focus on all of these things rather than people fitting in around the other jobs and their other priorities. Um, So I know that there's a lot of Australians that have contacted me that are actually in touch with asylum seekers through social media in Indonesia and they've met them that way and they want to help them specifically. I think it's very important for Australians that do this to understand that the asylum seekers that they're having discussions with are usually quite well educated, they have English, they know how to use social media, um, they're a lot better at, at working their way through the process in the system. It's the asylum seekers that they'll never be in touch with, that don't have any English, that have never been to school, that uh, a mother with her seven children that can't hardly leave the house, that are struggling for finance, uh, struggling for housing, very confused by the system. These are the ones that really need help. Uh, and these are the ones that Soaka focuses on helping. We have a merit system. So if someone comes to us with really good English and a good understanding because they're educated, we'll give them a self-help guide and say, here's all the information you need. Please write your draft and we will check it for you. Our focus is on the very, very vulnerable people. So if these are the people that Australians would really like to help, we would welcome funding from anyone that would like to help us. Um, There's UNHCR partners there, which are Jesuit Refugee Services, JRS, and CWS Christian World Service. And they're partnered officially with UNHCR to give assistance and support to either asylum seekers or refugees. Um, There's also a few small not-for-profit groups in Indonesia uh, that are mainly run by refugees, sometimes with assistance from people from other countries, and mainly learning centres. So they teach English, they teach some Bahasa, they teach some maths, some cultural understanding, and there's three or four different groups that do that around Indonesia. There's information about them on our website. Uh, I should have said before, there's also information on our website about domestic legislation and our self-help guides and all sorts of interesting things. So there's... 
The number one ways to help, and I know people said this to me when I was less experienced and I couldn't really get my head around it, is instead of helping an individual, which I know how makes you feel great, I know this person and I'm helping them and this is fantastic, but to get the best bang for your buck, it's to help an organisation which is a bit more structured and can help a group of people, not just one person. So there's, yeah, learning centres and there's SUACA. Um, UNHCR is very supportive of SUACA. We work very closely with them. When I arrived, I was asking them lots of questions about the different processes and they've been very welcoming. Um, they went through our self-help guides once we've written them and gave feedback on them before they were published. Uh, UNHCR is desperate for money. You know, you could do things like writing to your local member, why aren't we doing more to support UNHCR? You could give money to us. You could give money to learning centres that help refugees in Indonesia. Um, we have had, I have had quite a few people that are very skilled and experienced in Australia wanting to come across and help, and that's fantastic. But I always fall back on when I arrived, I felt totally useless for the first three to six months. I had learnt some language. I'd had language training, but still, totally different culture. Totally, I can't say enough what a different culture it is. And the day-to-day processes are different. The language is different. The understanding is different. Um, getting around, finding a place to live, feeding yourself, being confused by everything. So You don't want to end up being a burden on the organisation who you come to volunteer for, which yeah. so ends up being more of a workload for them in the end. Yeah. So as much as we would love to say, great, we haven't got desk space for ourselves, much less other people. Um, we don't. We work very long hours to help vulnerable people. So any time we have to take away from that to support an Australian that's come to help us, it detracts from what we help we can give to asylum seekers. We do have some lovely people that are doing research from Australia for us uh, and are trying to help in other ways, like trying to help us get a fundraising together or trying to help with our website and things like that. Really helpful. Um, yeah, but the best way people can help is is by supporting the organisations already work there. I should say as well that the Refugee Council of Australia has been very supportive of SUACA and they've... Um, Helped. They're helping us to translate our self-help guides into five other community languages. And that would be a huge assistance because if we can hand someone who doesn't speak English a guide in their own language, that takes a lot of the workload off of us um, and we can do the same thing with them and say, you do some work on it and then we'll polish it off and make sure it's fantastic. So Refugee Council of Australia, can't say enough good things about them. And I would really hope that other not-for-profit groups that can see how well Australia is structured when it comes to supporting asylum seekers and refugees can maybe look a little bit further and help Indonesia build the same structure of not-for-profit groups there. Okay, so one last question. Um, In an ideal world, how would Australia and Southeast Asian states cooperate more to address the issue of asylum seekers in the region in the long term? Oh, that's a big question. I could answer, I could rant about this for so long. In the ideal world, all countries would be signed to the convention. There wouldn't be people, you know, running all over the world because there'd be countries close to them where they could go and be supported. Well, in an ideal world, there would be no conflict. But signing the Refugee Convention is a big step forward um, and abiding by the Refugee Convention once you've signed it. Australia has been slapped on the wrist a couple of times for maybe some people would say stepping outside of the convention in in some of the things that they've decided to do. Um, So, yeah, abiding by the convention, signing the convention, getting support from UNHCR, UNHCR being properly funded to be able to do all the things it needs to do. 
um, and having more great partnerships with organisations in each country that can then give extra support, like medical, housing, finance, trauma counselling. So a lot of work to be done. But I do feel like in Indonesia there's a lot of people working really hard and that are really passionate about these issues and we are heading in the right direction. Okay. Thank you very much for your time today, Trish. It's been really interesting to learn more about the asylum seeker issue in Indonesia. It's been great. And people can look up our website, suaka.or, not org, or.id for Indonesia. We're also on Twitter, Suaka ID, and also on Facebook. So you can join up and follow along. Sometimes we don't post very often because we're a bit busy, but we do our best to keep up. Okay. Thank you, Trish. Thank you.